Well, good morning, church. Well, you think I'm going to let you off the hook because you're watching from home? If you didn't say good morning, come on. Good morning, church. That's right. Say it like, say it like you believe I can hear you because there will still be full participation this morning, even through the realm of technology. Church, just want to say this. Love you. Love you. And um, the fact that you can see my face and uh, the fact that I can't see yours is actually a little bit more emotional of an experience than I first um, anticipated. Even this morning, I'm here, and I look over to my right, and I'm missing, I'm missing my student section. And um, I look around the room, and there's seats where some of you normally sit. But now I know this, that we are united in spirit. We are still under the strong name of Jesus. This morning's unprecedented, but I'm reminded that it's... <laughs> that it's not unique. You see, church, we have the experience this morning to join with the church, uh, many portions of the church around the world who often are privileged to join in quiet places and in dark places, to join with the church which is otherwise not able to gather as we have the privilege to gather so often. But we know this, our God is near. We know this, we know this, we know where to find him. Uh, we know this, we know where to hear our God's voice, and we find it right here in this book. And so, uh, believing that you have a copy of God's word, come on, turn with me now to the book of Colossians, uh, Colossians chapter 1. If you are finding us by way of live, uh, live stream or by Facebook, however you are with us this morning, we are in the middle of a series called Centered. We study expositionally through uh, the Bible. And so we are in the book of Colossians. And this series that we're in is subtitled Centered. And we've been on this. Here is the premise of the series. We believe and we see by practice whatever is at the center of our lives, we, it tends to dictate. It tends uh, to draw us, our schedules, our time our attention, our thoughts, our feelings, right? What we place at the center of our lives has a great bearing and a great effect on our emotional, spiritual, and even physical conditions. This past week is a perfect example of that, is it not? Come on, how much has your life been disrupted? This one thing has been pressing in on all of our centers. My schedule, your budget, our relationships, our thoughts, our actions, our feelings. Even now, our Sunday morning experience, there is something that we can't even see that is now pressing in on our center. And today we're on this. Today we're on this, Christ-centered proclamation. And so participation, even from home, say proclamation. Well done. Christ-centered proclamation. You heard me uh, correctly. Proclamation. To proclaim is to preach. And so today's message is all about all of us as believers, as Christians, being called to preach. And you might be thinking to yourself, what? Me? A preacher? Uh, yeah. By definition, here it is, to preach, to publicly proclaim, and to teach. These are all dictionary definitions, by the way. I'm not making these up. Here they come. 
to earnestly advocate. To earnestly advocate is to preach. And I hear and I see some of you advocating on a regular basis some significant causes. You're preaching. To give advice. How about this? This is an actual definition. To give advice in an annoying or pompous, self-righteous way. Come on. Come on, preacher. Preach at home. You see, I'm not the only preacher in our church. That's for sure. Here's another one. To continually speak out for a cause. And that's why when somebody says something that you like what they say, you're like, preach. All of us, all of us are called to preach. And so the question is, under this definition, do you qualify? Indeed you do. And as a matter of fact, I qualify as a preacher under more than one of these definitions. The question isn't whether you're a preacher. The question is, what are you preaching about? Let us count the ways we preach. For the next two weeks, there's going to be a whole lot of preaching going on in my house. I don't know about yours. In, in my house, there is going to be a whole lot of preaching going on. You know why, right? My kids are home for the next two weeks. You can be sure that Miss Robin's going to have her preaching voice on. You can be sure she's going to be calling on Daddy to come on in and give a couple of propositional statements to the, to the team. What are we preaching about? Come on. Be kind to one another. Stop suplexing your brother. Be responsible for yourself. Find something to do. If I hear one more time that you're bored, come on, three points and they all start with P. Be kind, be responsible. Now this, be courteous. Be courteous. Would you please just pick up after yourself? Here's something we're preaching in our house all the time. Take your shoes off in the house and actually wear them when you go outside, even in the dead of winter. Have manners, say please, say thank you. Please use silverware when you're eating your cereal filled with milk. These are the things we're preaching, but there's the big one. The big one we've been preaching all this week, and I, I'm imagining that we've all been preaching it together. What is it? Come on, you probably know. Wash your hands. Come on, full-blown sermons starting like this. Wash your hands. We're all preaching. Be smart. You see, I kind of thought about this. You know, I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer, so I was raised in, in kind of that era uh, where uh, there was this fear of like raising latchkey kids, right? Where you, everyone had their key around their neck. Mom and dad both had to work. And so there was books written about latchkey kids. I have this thought that if, well, a couple years from now, we're going to go back and realize we, we created a bunch of sandy squirt kids because they were all going to school and living their lives with hand sanitizer, right? Around their neck. This is the day that we live in. You see, we tend to preach about what consumes our thoughts. We tend to preach about what presses in most upon our hearts and minds. And while we might giggle about hand sanitizer, it's real. And while we make post memes about there not being toilet paper at the store, come on, friends, this is reality. This past Friday, uh, my, my kids had off school before they actually canceled school. It was a snow makeup day, and so they had off school. And so earlier in the week before things started to get crazy, uh, Robin said to me, you know what, why don't we go to the, school, the zoo on Friday? And I was like, and I just got done watching the news, and, you, and I was like, I went directly into preacher mode. Are you kidding me? There is no way 
no way on this green earth that I am going to a metropolitan center and touching handrails where kids are slobbering and elephants are drooling. There is no way. Not going to happen. And so what happened in that moment? My wife got a sermon she didn't ask for. You preach any sermons recently that someone didn't ask for? The more important question is, what was the subject of that sermon? Maybe better, how often do you find yourself actually preaching that sermon? You see, we tend to speak up. We tend to proclaim. We tend to preach about those things which are pressing in on our center. You want to know what's at the center? Come on, see what you're riled up about. See what you're burdened by. See what you are declaring. This past week, I'd asked myself this and asking my kids, what does daddy preach about the most? And you know what I do. You're watching me right now. What does daddy preach about the most? Would they say Jesus? Could my sons say, daddy preaches about Jesus more. He preaches about the gospel more than he preaches to us about getting in line. Daddy cares more about righteousness than he does our polished reputation. Daddy cares more about our sanctification than he does running around about our physical safety, which he can't control. Would they say, Daddy cares more about preaching about the majesty of God, or does he preach about himself, about me? Anyone preaching about themselves recently? Anyone standing up for their freedoms and their rights and their desires and their needs? The Apostle Paul says this, for we proclaim not ourselves. We don't preach of ourselves, but we preach of Jesus Christ as Lord with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. And so today, we rid ourselves of me-focused proclamation and we replace it with a Christ-centeredness. 1 Corinthians 1.23, the Apostle Paul writes this, but we preach Christ crucified we preach Christ crucified. And in this preaching, we're going to see in today's text, he goes on to say, a stumbling block to the Jews and a folly to the Gentiles. And so here we go. All in favor of living a life that proclaims Christ. All in favor of living a Christ-centered proclamation kind of life. Say, come on, let's preach. Say it. Come on, I'm trusting you that you just said that at home. All right, here we go. Let's pick up the text. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, if you've been tracking with us, uh, you know the context. The Apostle Paul is sitting in a prison cell right now as he pens this letter. He's writing to a church that he did not plant, nor did he visit. But his friend Epaphras, someone whom he discipled, went and planted this church. And when false teachers crept into this church and tried to knock Jesus out of the center of their lives and out of the center of their church, the Apostle Paul picked up his pen and he went to battle. When false teachers came proclaiming, proclaiming something to push Jesus out of the center, the Apostle Paul picked up his pen and started to preach. Look with me, Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. The Apostle Paul says this, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church 
of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God more fully known, which is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but is now revealed to the saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. So here we go. Three evidences. Three evidences that our lives are centered around Christ-centered proclamation. You see, Christ-centered proclamation requires three things. Three points for today. Here's the first one. For our lives to be centered around Christ-centered proclamation, the Apostle Paul makes this clear. We will need to willingly suffer for the truth of Christ. The Apostle Paul says we, will, we are going to need to willingly suffer for the truth of Christ. Look at verse 24. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Now I rejoice in my sufferings. Say what? Like that's a record scratch. Stop the tape. What do you mean I'm going to rejoice in my sufferings? Like I'm in convenience right now and I'm not demonstrating that much joy. And so pop quiz, a pop quiz we have to ask ourselves, um, how is Paul suffering? We know, right, Paul, we know by context that the Apostle Paul is suffering most immediately by sitting in a prison cell. To what extent has Paul suffered? Listen to this. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, the Apostle Paul lays out. He had to defend his apostleship. People were coming up against him. And he's saying, you're going to question my devotion to the Lord and to the gospel? Here's what I've been through. He feels foolishly doing it, but it does give us some context to just how much Paul has been through. And it gives us context of how he was able to rejoice despite all of this. Check it out. And they, are they servants of Christ? He's talking about his accusers. I am a better one. I am talking like a madman. I don't want to do this, Paul says. But here it comes. With far greater labors, far more imprisonments. Paul says, I've had countless beatings, often near death. He says, five times, five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys in, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, dangers from Gentiles, he goes on to say. Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, danger at sea, dangers from false brothers, verse 27, in toil and in hardship. Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and in thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And he says, and apart from all of these things, there was this weight, this daily pressure on me, this anxiety for all the churches and all the people that he loved. And so when he says, I rejoice in my sufferings, this is the context. 
I'm going to speak for myself that my inconvenience this past couple of weeks doesn't come close to this just yet. But yet he says, I rejoice. Why was Paul suffering? Ephesians chapter 6 verse 18 says this. Come on, pray also for me that the words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel. Pray that I be able to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. I'm in prison, Paul says, for preaching the gospel. And so context is king. It's important that we recognize that our context is different than the apostle Paul's. But still we have to ask ourselves, how is he able to rejoice? How was it? Having gone through all of these things, isolation being one of them, he was able to find joy. You see, the apostle Paul suffered for preaching the gospel, and the same thing will be true for us. It may not be prison, it may not be beatings, it may not be stoning. I'm not in the habit of traveling by ship, especially right now, so it might not be shipwreck. But make no mistake, danger looms. Jesus said this, Matthew 10, 22. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, he says. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The one who I positionally saved, I will see through to the end. But know this, suffering will come. Persecution will come. And so the question I have for you, I know that we've all have been through some things, but have we suffered for Jesus recently? Because it really concerns me if I'm vulnerable with you about my personal heart. I have difficulty suffering when it's not about Jesus, let alone when it is about Jesus. This whole thing is revealing a lot about my heart. How was Paul able to rejoice in the midst of difficulty and suffering? Well, I believe he had a clear theology of suffering. Can you believe there is such a thing, a theology of suffering? Kind of five points that I'd want to give you today uh, that comes out of this uh, text for sure that I believe the Apostle Paul had a theology of suffering. The first will be this. We need to believe that persecution is evidence of blessing. The Apostle Paul knew that persecution was actually evidence of blessing. Why do I believe that's true? Jesus' words again. Matthew 5, 11, Blessed are you when others revile you. Blessed are you when others think you're weird. Blessed are you when, speak up, when you speak up and say, we've got to trust the Lord during this time. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely on your account. You see, friends, as we share the gospel, as we live the gospel in this day, it's just so important that we remember 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, for we are the aroma of Christ. We are the aroma of Christ. Did you know you stink? To some, to some, you're a pretty stink, right? But to others, the Bible says, you're not such a good stink. That's what, watch, 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 watch the text. Hopefully you have the text in front of you, otherwise you're shaking your head right now. Here it comes. We are the aroma of Christ 
to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Listen, to one, to one we are a fragrance from death to death. To others we are a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? To the one who are being drawn to the grace of gospel, you stink pretty. To those who are despised by the work of the gospel, you don't stink so well. And so the Apostle Paul clearly knew, look, 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 for me to do the work the Lord has called me to do, I just know the suffering actually in this context, when it, the gospel's at the center of it, it's actually to be perceived as a blessing from the Lord. Here's the second thing. Here's the second thing. Suffering is an honor. You see, suffering is an honor. Apostle Paul believed that suffering is an honor. You may, you may remember Acts chapter 5, verse 41. Peter and the apostles, uh, they come before a council. Uh, the council eventually lets them go, right? We've got to obey God over men. And whether it's right or wrong for us to preach Jesus, you decide. And then they let him go. And then they say this. And then they left the presence of the council rejoicing. Rejoicing that they were counted worthy. Hear it? That they were privileged to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. Here's what I want you to catch. If you suffer for Christ, you have the privilege to suffer with Christ. As Christ, Christian, hear this. When you suffer for Christ, you, you have the privilege to suffer with Christ. Come on, pastor, where are you getting this from? Philippians chapter 3, verse 8. The Apostle Paul says this, Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. Man, just stop right there. If you lose everything, will Jesus still be enough? This is where we find our grounding. For Jesus is enough. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. For his sake, for Jesus' sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish compared to him. In order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And that I may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. This is what the Apostle Paul meant in this passage when he says this. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. You see what he says? In my flesh. In my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. He's saying this. In my suffering, I'm finding fellowship with Jesus' physical suffering, not his spiritual Let's be clear. The Apostle Paul is not saying, hey, that I'm adding something to the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We get that. Romans 6.10, just to be clear, says this. For we know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died once for all. But the life that he lived, we now live to God. What is Paul saying? The death of Jesus is sufficient. The author of Hebrews reminds us Jesus Christ died once for all for the sins of the entire world and no suffering that you endure will get you into greater favor with the Lord. What we're talking about here is fellowship. Fellowship. 
That when we're willing to allow Christ and his gospel to be at the center, if hardship comes in the midst of that, we find fellowship in the midst of our suffering. The apostle, remember, the apostle Paul, context, 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 is sitting in a prison cell. He's there because he was preaching the, co- the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he knew that persecution is evidence of blessing in this context. He knew that suffering was an honor. Now, number three, this. He knew that he was not greater than his master. The apostle Paul knew that he was not greater than his master. You remember Jesus' words here? To his disciples, Jesus said this, remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. Listen, listen. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you. If they persecute me, they're going to persecute you, Jesus says. What does it mean What does it mean when the Apostle Paul writes in this text that I rejoice because I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction? The men who hated Jesus crucified him. The men who crucified him hated him. And that hatred didn't cease when he died. And so there's still more obstinance to be thrusted toward the name. And so what Paul is saying is this, look, 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 look. That disdain for the things of truth have been passed on to the next generation and I am counted worthy in the sense that just as those others stood against the grace of the gospel, they will stand against it some more. And I've got to recognize that I am not greater than Jesus. If Jesus suffered, so too will I suffer. That's his point. And so when we continue to preach the truth of Jesus, we should expect to experience and join in Christ's afflictions. This is a theology of suffering that has Christ-centered proclamation at the center. You see, suffering is an honor. Persecution is evidence of blessing. We are not greater than our master, but now this. Oh, oh, now this. Oh, how many of us need to hear this. Number four. Eternal glory awaits. No theology of suffering is complete without recognizing this. Glory awaits. Paul knew to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. He knew the last breath he would breathe on this earth. They would be followed by the first breath that he would breathe in heaven. That's what the scriptures teaches, and that's what Paul proclaimed. Romans chapter 8, verse 18 says this, for I consider, come on, hear this church, I consider this. For I consider the sufferings of this present time. For I consider the sufferings of this present time. For I consider the sufferings of this present time. They're not worth comparing to the glory, it says. I consider the sufferings of this present time. I consider that they are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. These present sufferings are not to be compared with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. And so whatever we endure on this side of heaven, this is as bad as it's going to get. 
It may get worse physically and practically, but what I'm saying is this, what awaits us in heaven is an eternal glory, eternal favor. The book of Revelation tells us he will wipe the tear from our eye. There will be no more mourning and there will be no more pain. And there, for those who have a hope of the gospel of Christ, comes an eternity, a pleasure, a dwelling with Christ Jesus. Well, come on, friends, how was Paul able to rejoice? I get that our sufferings were not the same as the Apostle Paul's. We have the context of that. But here indeed, we have to ask ourselves, do we get this? Can we find our center in this? Whatever happens, it might might be regarded as the worst thing that could happen on this earth will lead to Glory. This is Christ-centered proclamation. When we anchor our lives in Christ-centered proclamation, we're reminded that we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering. And then finally this, the Apostle Paul says this. Here's a good theology of suffering. Know that suffering is part of the mission. He knew that suffering was part of the mission. He knew that suffering was part of the mission. Look at what he says in verse 24. Again, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. Why is he doing this? For the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying this, I'm willing to suffer because I've been sent. The proclamation that I preach is this, God loves and God saves and God rescues. And not everybody loves to hear that message because of what it entails. But having believed that, I also now believe that I'm sent unto you to the glory of God. Paul says, I rejoice in my sufferings for the sake of his body, which is Jesus' body, which is the church. And so Paul is saying, I'm willing to suffer for proclaiming the truth. I preach the truth because Jesus has called me to preach it. And Jesus has called me to preach so that people will be safe. And so the question is, are you living the gospel Are you sharing the gospel? When people look at your response and your reactions, even this past week, would they see something different about you, church? Paul is saying, I'll gladly suffer for the mission. I will, and then he said, then this, I will leverage my suffering for Jesus. I will leverage, I will leverage this situation. I will leverage my displacement. I will leverage my loss. I will leverage my frustration. I will leverage this inconvenience. I will leverage this for the sake of Jesus, his gospel, and the church. Can you think of ways that the Lord is rearranging your life so that you can actually have a greater impact for the Lord? Or are we still focused on what we can and can't do? That's how we rejoice, realizing that God never wastes an experience. 
but he does redirect our attention for his purpose. Here's what's fascinating about the context. You see, the integrity of Paul's ministry came down to his willingness to suffer. Catch this. The integrity of Paul's witness, the integrity of Paul's proclamation came down to his willingness to suffer and leverage his suffering. Why do I say that? Because the false teachers who were coming in and pressing on the church's center, we see this in, Phil, in, in the church of Philippi and also in the church of Corinth, they were coming and saying, well, you're going to trust the apostle Paul? How can God be on his side, right? Shipwrecked, whipped, getting bitten by snakes, putting his hand in fire. How are you going to trust the guy who is sitting in prison right now? How are you going to trust the guy who's gone through so much hardship? My response would be, how do you trust somebody who's not willing to? How do you trust somebody who's not willing to endure hardship for what they believe? How do you trust somebody when the difficult day comes that all of a sudden their joy ceases? How do we trust someone when all of a sudden our, we become inconvenienced and now all of a sudden our joy, our outlook becomes fatalistic? This is our witness, church. This is how it works. Suffering is a means of mission and it is an opportunity for us to show that the joy of Christ is not affected by the circumstances around us. Oh, let us sing praise to the Lord from the top of our lungs. May your neighbors have heard your voices this morning. And here I have to ask myself, Can I honestly say that I'd be willing to suffer for these three things? For Jesus, his gospel, and his church. This is the example of the Apostle Paul. I know and I believe with all my heart that I would suffer for my family. Step in front of a bus for our spouse, I, I hope. Oh, to think of the thought of you stepping towards my children, we would, what? I see many people willing to suffer for many things. And I'm not saying any of these things disparagely. I'm just saying them for context, right? We, people will suffer for their, for their pets and people would suffer for their friends and people will suffer to preserve their material possessions right now and people will suffer to, for their homes and for their houses and for their car and will go to great lengths to preserve and suffer for these things. But can we honestly say that we'd be, we would suffer for Jesus when push comes to shove? And maybe the step before that would be to answer this question. Would we be willing to utilize current sufferings for the sake of Christ-centered proclamation. For who doesn't need to hear in this time? Who doesn't need to hear in this time that God loves them? Who doesn't need to hear in this time that there is a greater future ahead? Who doesn't need to hear that the Lord is faithful and that he does, that his name is a strong tower? Who doesn't need to hear that he shows no partiality, that he's willing for all men to come into salvation? Which leads us to the second point. 
Christ-centered proclamation. We need to willingly suffer for the truth of Christ. That's point one. The apostle Paul shows that. Now this, we would wisely steward this truth that we've been entrusted with. He calls us to wisely steward the truth of Christ, which we've been entrusted with. Look at verse 25. He says, look, I'm, I rejoice in my sufferings for in these sufferings I'm fulfilling what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the church. Now verse 25, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship of God. Something's been entrusted to the apostle Paul. What is it? The stewardship is from God, Paul says. And it was given to me for you. And what it, now look, look, look. To make the word of God fully known. To make the word of God known. This is Paul's stewardship that he would preach. That he would declare. That in times of difficulty and in times of, of, of plenty and in times of want, that his message wouldn't change. whether we're gathered all together or whether dispersed amongst the land, that the message wouldn't change, that our hope wouldn't be deferred. Paul says, I'm a steward. A steward is someone who manages somebody else's equity and assets. Oh, do you see the truth of God is precious and valuable? Do you realize when you embrace the gospel, you've been giving something infinitely precious? Paul realizes this message isn't mine, so I can't change it. I can only deliver it. Paul would say this, this church, this ministry, it isn't mine, but I am a steward who must give myself to it. Even his own body, the apostle Paul says this, for you were bought with a price, and so glorify God in your body. Oh, Christian, how we need to be reminded of this. Psalm 139, your days, your breath has already been counted by God. Oh, let us be wise in these days. Oh, let us exercise social distancing as is appropriate. Let us go after and be wise. But at the same time, let us not live in fear. Let us take every opportunity to encourage the isolated. Let us take every opportunity as as the Lord gives to love those. Who are going to be alone for two weeks at a time. I have no idea what that looks like. Oh, but I pray that our heart is thinking on this. Paul just knew that he needed to make the word of God fully known. What this means that he was called to preach the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel. He had to preach the whole thing. Not just the parts that he liked. And not just the parts that others wanted to hear. He had to preach the difficult parts too. And, and that's, that's what this comes down to. And this is why Paul was sitting in prison when he wrote this letter. You see, Paul was compelled to preach a portion of God's truth that the religious leaders of his day and false teachers didn't want to hear. They hated it. He was preaching something that the establishment of the day just didn't want to hear. And he says here in the text that it was called a mystery, verse 26. 
The mystery that was hidden for ages and generations, it says, but now has been revealed to the saints. Come on, what is this mystery? Look at verse 27. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you. What was the message that the establishment didn't want to hear? God loves people outside of you. You're not the only game in town. You're not the only one that you need to be worried about. Come on, religious person. You're not the only one who needs this message. What the religious establishment of Paul's day didn't want to hear, and what they needed to hear was this. God shows no partiality. He desires for all men to hear the gospel and to be saved. He desires for us to live the gospel of love and grace and affection and provision and service to all men. And so while, yes, we need to be willing to suffer for the gospel of Jesus, it better not be because we're acting poorly. We're to love and we're to care. And we're to offer the gospel of Jesus to every man and every person, a hope and a peace. What is this mystery? The mystery, a truth not previously known, now revealed, Paul says, to the saints. It's now revealed to the church through the apostles in the New Testament. Ephesians. The Apostle Paul says this in verse 6. The mystery is, I like it when it's just super clear, right? Super clear. The mystery is, in case you're wondering, the mystery is, verse 6 of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6. The mystery is that the Gentiles are now fellow heirs. They are now members of the same body. They are now partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. What? This was a mystery, honestly, that was hidden in plain sight, by the way. In the Old Testament, Isaiah 42, verse 6, the Lord even said to the religious, to, his, to the people of his day, to Israel, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people a light unto the nations. When you see the word nations in the Old Testament, think Gentiles. I've given you a light and a covenant that's going to bless the entire world. So what's going on? Their prejudice and religious preeminence caused them to not like this. They were above the others. They were the blessed ones. They were the chosen ones. They were the clean ones. The Gentiles, these other folks were the dirty Sinners that needed to cleanse themselves and come under. But whether they hated it or not, the Apostle Paul knew that it was his stewardship to preach the gospel of peace to every man and not just those who found themselves religious. And so this stewardship now has been passed to you and this stewardship now has been passed to me. 2 Timothy 2, 2, come on, that which you've heard from me and trust the faithful men who can teach others also. The Apostle Paul says this to Timothy, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience. 
And so here it is, church. We, in this time, more than ever, need to shout it loudly and proclaim it boldly with our voice and our actions. This, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring according to the promise. There is no one outside of the reach of God's grace. It's our calling to share the gospel to the oppressed. It's our stewardship to share the gospel to the marginalized. Christ-centered proclamation requires that in these days we are in word and deed living and sharing the gospel to the vulnerable. Let us seek the Lord for wisdom and how this is practically applied. But let us not merely look after ourselves. Let us devote ourselves. The instruction is given to the church. Teach the church to do good so that we can respond in times of urgent need. Oh, that the people would look to the church. Oh, that people would look to Christians for their needs. Come on, church, think, contemplate, strategize. Small groups, come together and consider how you can serve those who are vulnerable in your context. This is Christ-centered proclamation. Hear this. Heaven is going to be filled with people not like us. Heaven is going to be filled with diversity. Let's get ourselves practicing now. And I pray that heaven will be filled with those whom the Lord has moved the church to serve, even if that which is among us causes them to breathe their last breath. May they do it loved because we're the church. Everyone needs to hear the gospel. You are the deliverers of that. Which leads us to the third and final point. Winsomely share the truth of Christ. Christ-centered proclamation demands that we winsomely share the truth of Christ. Will, willing to suffer, sure, but not asking for it. Willing to leverage our suffering, but not being foolish to run at it. Winsomely. Look at what the Apostle Paul says in 28 and 29. Look, I need to make known, verse 27, the great truths of God among the Gentiles. Now this, verse 28. We proclaim him, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this, Paul says, I toil. For this, struggling with all of my energy, he says, I, I am just... He, I'm just longing for the Lord's power to be at work in me. What's going to sustain you? What's going to allow you to do the thing you never thought you'd have the strength to do? Submitting yourself to the power of God in you. Allowing the gospel to take its grip and to take root. Doing things, running towards things that others are running from. Offering things that others are hoarding. This is the way of Christ. 
This is what makes Christians peculiar people. We're willing to suffer to leverage the gospel of Christ. Because whatever we endure here will pale in comparison to the glory that awaits us in heaven. Oh, let us not act like this is as good as it gets. Oh, let us not act like we can preserve something great here. Let us live like every charitable act and every gift of love and every sacrifice that we willingly make for another is indeed what the scriptures is saying it is. Glory. Crowns, if you will. Let us not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough trouble of its own. Let us live for Christ now. And so Paul says we proclaim. We've got one message. It's Jesus. He brings hope. Let us act in the way of Jesus. He says, I warn everyone. We've got one piece of advice. We've got one counsel and one warning. Come to Jesus and live the way of Jesus. Let us teach everyone, he says. We've got one body of teaching. What does it look to live the life of Christ? Come on. Put off the old man, put on the new. Let your heart be filled with new virtue. Love your family and care for your home. Unite in the church of Christ. Use your spiritual gift. And then come on, let's submit to governing authorities and serve our community. And then when they say, why are you doing this? Let's give an answer for the hope that is within us. The gospel of Jesus Christ compels us to live this way. And then know this, the adversary prowls like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Let us not lose sight. But man, how I'm tempted to lose sight when I'm pressed upon. And so we proclaim the gospel. What is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Corinthians chapter 15, the apostle Paul says this. This is the gospel, brothers, that I preached to you, which you received and in which you stand. For I delivered to you, verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance that, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Christ died for your sins according to the scriptures that he was buried and then he raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Paul says, this is the message that I preach. This is the message that you receive. You know that you're a sinner who needs a savior. That's why the apostle Paul says this, warning every man. We proclaim to every man, but now we warn everyone. What are we warning? Nothing of my own, just what the Bible says. The Bible says this, for the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. We're warning that sin is deadly. We're warning, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is, but hearing this though, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but the Lord will be patient with you. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come and reach repentance. What is repentance? Lord God, please forgive me of my sins. James 4, 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. James 4, 8. It says, cleanse your hands. Every time you wash your hands this week, maybe you would think of this scripture. Think of this. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. 
We proclaim the gospel of Christ. Jesus Christ died for us. We warn every man that sin, that sin, that sin has disrupted God's plan. Repent and believe. And then in believing, the Apostle Paul says this, we teach and instruct in the way of Christ. Come on, Mission Church, you know Matthew 28, go ye therefore into all the world, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then what? Teaching them to observe all that Christ commanded. Hear me, it's hard. It's hard to teach all that Christ commanded if we're not living all that Christ commanded. If we're not finding our center in the provision of the gospel, if we're tossed to and fro, how are others going to find the peace that Christ offers? Paul says this, I do this so that we would be matured. I preach to you into a camera lens because we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ will give you strength in this moment. And when you open God's word tomorrow, you will find strength there again. And when you do it the next day, you'll find it again. And when you lift praises unto God, it'll refresh your soul and remind you of the joy that only comes in Christ. And so that's why Paul says, therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, act like it. Actually, he says, walk in him. As you receive Christ Jesus, the Lord, walk in him, which means act like it. Be rooted, be centered, be grounded, be established in the faith, just as you were taught. When I was a kid, my mom would say, did you lose your manners? We taught you better. Oh, how in times like this, now is the time that we anchor ourselves in the gospel of Christ and we live what we've been taught. God shows no partiality. We serve the underprivileged and oppressed. We look out for the marginalized. We welcome the diversity that the Lord is calling us to welcome. Friends, just stop and think about the opportunity that is in front of us. This is gospel opportunity. The whole world is standing still. The whole world is standing still and it's being held captive by something that we can't even see. Colossians chapter 1 reminds us that our Lord is preeminent over all things. Man, I'm just reminded right now how vulnerable am I? How weak am I? Now more than ever in recent history, the Lord is calling us to proclaim and to live Christ-centered proclamation. May it be true of us. And so we ask this, are we willing to leverage our circumstance for the cause of the mission? Are we willing to press in? Are we willing to lean in? Are we willing to ask the Lord, not why, but now what? Lord, what would you have me do to model your gospel? Lord God, what would you have me do to demonstrate your grace? Are we willing? Are we willing? Are we willing to struggle? Or are we willing to suffer? Are we willing 
to invoke wisdom to reach those who are in need, to strategize how can we model the gospel of Christ? Are we willing? Are we willing to be winsome and loving and offer the hope that the Lord has offered us? And so, Father, we contemplate these things today. Father, you've given us, you've given us a hope that's been made more sure. God, we have studied your gospel over these days. We seek, Lord God, to anchor ourselves in this truth. God, we know that you've called us to be a loving people and to be a serving people and to allow your witness to flow through us. Oh God, help us to focus ourselves on this right now. And Lord God, for those who are hearing this message, by whatever means it might be, I just pray, Lord God, that your Holy Spirit would come upon them even now. Father, we need hope in these days. We need hope in these days. I believe this book that we preach brings hope because it speaks of your Holy Spirit and Christ's work. And so God, the hope of the gospel, even now, Lord God, your scriptures tell us if we believe in our hearts and we confess with our mouths that Christ Jesus went to the cross for us and raised from the dead, we will be saved. With our heart we believe and with our mouth we confess. Your scriptures tell us when we submit ourselves to you in repentance, Lord, that you make us a new creation and we know that you will fill our lives with hope. And so, Lord God, may we live as centered, hope-filled people, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.